But I want to speak on a topic today that I honestly believe, um, and I'm going to say this really cautiously, and those of you who know me, you're going to go like this. Get ready to go, <gasps> okay? I'm going to say this. I really believe it's a, like a, a word from the Lord for us. And the reason I go, <gasps> is because I never say that. A lot of you know me for 10 years. You don't hear me say that. Because I don't say that. Um, this is God's word for us. Um, but I really think the Lord wants to address something today to help us with something today. And I wrote this sermon a couple weeks ago, believing I should speak it today. And honestly, it doesn't make sense to speak it today because I knew it would be the middle of summer and probably the peak of vacation season, and a lot of people would be gone. But I just felt like I was supposed to do it today. And um, I think what I'm going to talk about today is application to our corporate life as a church. It absolutely does. But it has application to our private life. Um, as individual Christians. And I want you to understand something. There is no such thing as, honestly, it's a misnomer. No time in history in Christianity has there been the idea that there's the idea of Christianity without corporate. Christianity is a corporate experience. This individual Christianity, and I'm not preaching about that at all today, but it's it's unknown to 2,000 years of church history until since about the 1940s or 50s in, in Western, especially American Christianity. The idea of individual Christianity. It's all about corporate. Um, because we, we're, we're born into a family. And um, I think this message has applications both ways, both through our corporate life and to our individual life. And I want to talk about the need that I see in our church family for what I want to call the inbreaking of God. The need for us to experience an invasion, a reality a supernaturalness of God in our lives as individuals and as our lives corporately as we come together as a church. And would it be, to to say that why this is true, wouldn't it be fair to say that there are situations going on in every one of our lives that need the inbreaking of God? That we all have relatives that we've been hoping would come to Jesus for years sons and daughters, spouses, moms and dads. You know, we have situations like I have on our vacation, our word, and this is just for us as a church family, but our communication all the time was that my, my sister, you know, who's an alcoholic, was back in, had all kinds of problems this week because of her alcoholism, ended up being arrested and, and different things and trying to forever for 20 years to get her in a teen challenge. Um, there's situations in our lives that just our hard work aren't fixing. Um, there's situations in your lives where you and other people are dealing with illnesses, mental illnesses, physical illnesses, in your own life or a loved one that, that you know, doctors can do what the doctors can do, but the doctors can only do what the doctors can do. And there's a point where it has to be God. There's situations in this very room and we know this because we're just people that there's nagging sins that we just can't seem to break free of. And you want to, you long to, but you just seem to, that you can't get past it. And maybe this is, is, is one of the things, the next thing that, that, that I think shows the need for the inbreaking of God is, is this is one we, we lie to ourselves about. But there's an emptiness inside of our hearts a lot of times And we try to mask the emptiness with activity, with continual spending, 
If I just buy something else, I'll feel better. Or constant distraction of just keeping busy. If I just run to the next event, run to the next thing, run to the next whatever. And what we do is, or just at least be plugged in all the time, all the time, plugged in, watching, watching, constantly distracted, watching, you know, fainting goats because I don't want to deal with the, the fact that I feel empty inside. Or, you know, Batman slapping Robin. You know, constantly. We live like that all the time. And I think we know that we really need an inbreaking of God. Wouldn't you agree with that? I think we really do. Um, and here's what I know. Worry hasn't worked. Anybody in here got a PhD in worry? I do. I've got an earned doctorate in worry. And I try not to. You know, first thing, the most common thing Jesus says is, fear not. But I have an earned doctorate in worry. I'm a master at it. You know? I've had to coin a phrase that, 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 you know, sleep is overrated. And I'm getting better at it, but the fact is, worry doesn't fix these things. Um, brainstorming, coming up with a bunch of people and say, how do we fix this situation, um, is, doesn't fix these things. Um, working harder doesn't fix these things because we're all good at all of those things. So I think there's a reality we're saying we need an inbreaking of God. But let's put that sense of we need an inbreaking of God into the reality of where we exist as in a community that's really good and a church that's really wonderful. Because this is what I think really is our reality. We need an inbreaking of God, but here's our reality we live in. That to me, as a church, we are nice, we are stable, that we are in an easy-going place. The programs and the people are in place. That if I gave a poll, I believe this would be true. I wouldn't be afraid to give this poll. If I gave a poll to everybody today and it was anonymous and I said, do you think the church is, is, is stable and that you're happy, and things are going good, I think, you know, we get five stars out of five from almost everybody. Maybe four and a half, I'm not sure, but there might be a person who would give you two, but it'd be pretty much five stars. They'd say, Portview's doing really, really well. But I don't really think that, that just being stable is God's best for his church. I do believe he wants us stable and happy, but I believe he wants a lot more us, that he wants us to live in the reality of his supernaturalness. Now, you can't live in that every minute of every day. That's what some people would take revival to an extreme, and they try to live in revival. It doesn't work, because you're not designed to live where somebody's taking paddles at the emergency room, and boom, boom, shocking your heart constantly. That's what reviving is, reviving. But there's times when we need this this inbreaking of God, this Holy Spirit-empowered presence of God. We always need to live in it, but there's times we, that, we, that we live in just a so nice vanilla life that the whole rest of the world goes, that's the, 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 the point of success. You got this nice vanilla life, but as children of God, we say, God has something more. That he wants us to live in a place where that when, when we pray for the sick, they are healed. And where your children do come to know Jesus as Savior. They are saved. And I think this, we need to live in a place, and I hope this, I hope you want to live in a place 
where the conviction from the Holy Spirit is so real that that when you're out of line, out of step with the Lord, his conviction is so real that you feel his conviction so much so that it makes you want to change. I don't want to be part of a church where it's just nice and easy going and you come in and you smile and you go out and you smile. I was teasing with some people beforehand and I said, I want you to come in crabby and leave happy. Talking about kids being crabby because they're tired. I said, what a, what a great thing for our sign. You come in crabby, you leave happy. But I want more than that. I want more than coming in crabby and leaving happy. I want us to be a place where the conviction of the Holy Spirit is so real that, that, when, that if we get out of step with the Lord, and we all do, that we come together and the presence of God is so real that we say, you know what, I don't want to live out of step. Because God's conviction is always out of love, and he's saying, I've got something better for you. We come together, and his conviction, I don't want to live in some place where there's no conviction. Right? I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to follow. I know I don't do that on my own. I need his help. We need the unbreaking of God. I want to be in a place where people, and I'm saying this specifically the week after I said two weeks of vacation on purpose, so you don't misunderstand me. Because I'm not in any way saying you shouldn't, we shouldn't take vacations. I needed a vacation. Before I left, I needed a vacation. I did. Like My family was saying, Dad, you need a vacation. My wife was saying, Dad, you need a vacation. Or honey, you need a vacation. <laughs> Dad, I'm not your father. <laughs> Luke, I'm not your father. <laughs> um, but I want to be in a place where... I would rather be at church with my brothers and sisters in Christ experiencing the inbreaking of God and the conviction, convicting power of God and the saving power of God than being every single week at some other place running around to find distraction. Good as they may be, but they're not the best. I want to be in a place where we actually believe that, that it's not guilt that would say, oh, I shouldn't really go there, I should go to church. But that is this reality of the reality of the presence of God is so powerful and so real. And it doesn't, again, does not mean that it has to be demonstrated in, in just crazy ways all the time, but that it's so real that we say, you know what, yeah, I'll, I'll go to that after. Or I'll rearrange my life because this is so wonderful. That's what I think God has for He wants to break into our nice, peaceful existence and amaze us with his presence and his reality and his power. And church, I believe we need that. I think we need it in breaking, an invasion of God into our our corporate life at Portview and our life as individuals. And I'd say this, not only that, but our community needs it. Our friends and families Our neighbors, a lot of them are lost without Jesus. And here's what I know. Nice, neat, orderly, not that nice, neat, and orderly are bad, but controlled little church services don't change people. That what what our community needs is that they know they come in and the presence of God is so real that that they have to make a decision for or against the Lord. People need an encounter with the living God. And we need a fresh encounter with the living God. What I want to do today is I want to look at a section of Scripture 
that I think gives us some insight into having an encounter with God, about this life of experience with God. And now hear me today, because you're turning in your Bibles, and I want you to do that. You're going to look at the book of Acts, I think chapter 12, we're going to look at in a minute. But as you're turning there, don't not hear what I'm saying right now. Here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying we're going to look at a scripture and find a formula that's going to say if we follow this formula, because that's the, that's the the bane of religion. It's the mistake of religion. They boil down a relationship which is vibrant and interactive between man and God into a formula, do these three things, and then God will show up. That's what religion becomes. So then you've got to shift from that and create something new because it doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. So I'm not trying to say we're doing some kind of system we're going, to, we're going to discover some formula on how we're going to obligate God to break into our existence in a more dramatic way. Rather, I think it points us in a direction that we must walk in in order to experience God in a more dramatic way. And, and when I say that statement, understand this. You know, I make this comment a lot of times, be careful when you point your finger at somebody because three more are pointing back at you. There's a similar thing in this that I'm going to say right here. When you're going to walk in a direction to go in a certain way that also implies that we have to begin to walk away. If we're walking towards something, we walk away from something else. That make sense? We're going to walk in a direction that's going to say, God, here's what we see in your word about, about how you tie your activity to the, to, the, to the reality of people's lives. But in order to do that, we've got to walk away from some other things. We've got to walk away from probably some other activities and some other preoccupations and some other distractions. To see that happen. It changes how we, how we, what we do, what we commit to, where we go, where we don't go. And I really think we need to be open to this so that we are in a place where we, we are willing to go in any direction God wants us to go so that we are transformed by his presence among us. And before I read the text from Acts 12, let me, let me put it in context. This is about these, these early disciples with Jesus. These first, these first followers of Jesus had been with him for a while and had walked the streets with him and they've watched him feed 5,000 with a couple of loaves and perform miracles, blind people see, lame people walk. You know, all these things are going on and they, they're following him and they've watched him be falsely accused and is sentenced to death and to die on a cross. But then they had also seen him risen from the dead and alive and and. Uh, and being with him, and um, he, had, he had walked with them and then commissioned them to take his message, the gospel message, to everybody everywhere. This message that Jesus is alive, and that through him, everyone and anyone can have their sins forgiven, and the power of sin can be broken in anybody's lives, and that once we receive him as Savior, then we'll be with him forever. That's what eternal life is, is being with him forever, and that we'll never die spiritually. We'll walk with him forever. And they were telling that message to everyone who would listen. And, and, and what we see from Scripture is miracles were happening. The Holy Spirit had filled people and people were being healed. And Gentiles, by this point next, Gentiles were being saved. Also was happening in the church, people were dropping over dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira had lied about some money situations and they fell over dead in church. And I'm hoping for conviction of the Lord, but... You all want to go back to the early church? And you lie about what you give in church? <laughs> you fall over dead? This, stuff's, this stuff's going on. 
What else was going on? The great persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus, who was killing people and imprisoning people following Christ, had, had an encounter with the living God, and, and now he was blinded, and that he could see, and God spoke to him. He's now preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, thing, the very thing he had fought against. That's what's going on in the development of the early church. Miracles were happening because of the presence of God among the people of God. But something else was also happening. Persecution was rising. Things were going great for the church. You know, power of God was present, but the world was taking notice, and they didn't like what they were seeing because they were drawing people to themselves, which meant away from other things, and persecution was rising. So the first ever Christian martyr is killed. Stephen is stoned just for following Jesus. And that's where the section of Scripture begins that we're going to look at today with the persecution rising against the followers of Jesus. So let's look at Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read 17 verses, verses 1 through 17. It says this, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews... He proceeded to arrest Peter also. That was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that that after the Passover to bring him out before the people, which means bring him out and kill him like he did James. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God, church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel from the Lord suddenly appeared and, he, and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up quickly and his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When he had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that led into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where there were many gathered together and they were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, and she recognized Peter's voice. Because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is an angel. It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And then they left and went to the other place. So this other James, James the brother of John, 
was put to death by the sword. And now Peter was in prison and he's chained to Roman guards until the the time when he would be brought out and executed like James was. And based on what had happened to James, the church knew that they were in a dire situation. And we ask ourselves, knowing they're in a dire situation, knowing that, that he's going to be killed, what was the church doing? What did they do in response to a dire situation? They had a prayer meeting. They had a prayer meeting. Two times in a text it says, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God, verse 5, and then, and many were gathered together and were praying in verse 12. See, I believe this section of Scripture reveals some vital things about welcoming the presence of God into our dire situation. And I'm going to cover these three, three points rather quickly so we can end with a time of prayer up here around the altar if you so desire to join me. So what are the things we see from this text? What's the first thing we find that was vital to experiencing God's invasion in a, in a, in a, in a desperate situation? First of all is this. They knew they were desperate. Number one, they just knew they were desperate. Remember something, these were people just like you and me, and they were used to working hard. Matter of fact, they were used to God walking with Jesus and Him doing miracles. They were used to being part of what God was doing, but also working hard, figuring things out, solving problems. But they come to this situation, and there's no way to figure this one out. They couldn't work hard enough, think well enough, strategize good enough to make this thing work out. Peter was in prison under Roman guards, and they were going to kill him like they did James, and there was nothing that they could do about it. They couldn't muster the little mass of people they had and storm the prison. It wouldn't work. They'd all be killed. There was nothing they could do about it. They were desperate. So they did the one and the only thing that they could do. They turned their attention to the one and only one who could do something which is God. You see, when you get desperate, people do what they need to do. Now, here's my perspective. So what they did when they prayed. Here's my perspective on prayer in the church today, in our own lives. I don't know what goes on in your house, but as a church, I would say this. I don't think we feel desperate about anything. Somehow we believe if we plan well, we work hard, we program well, we brainstorm, we put the things in place, we hire pastors, we do whatever, that the answers we need can be accomplished. But let me tell you the truth. Your child will not be saved by your energy and your effort, by the work of a Christian school or of a youth pastor in a youth group. Your child will only be saved by the activity of the Holy Spirit in their life. Scripture says one plants, one waters. God brings the increase. It's not about the planter or the waterer. It's about engaging in the presence of God. And I don't know if this is true, but I felt very compelled to say this today. Your struggling marriage or your addiction or your broken heart, these will not be fixed by your hard work or your strategizing 
or you're reading more books. Although hard work and reading books and all that are okay and they're good, they may help. But you need the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit in your situation. And I'm not sure we really believe this. Because we don't seem very desperate because it's so easy to be distracted in our culture. We give more energy to everything else than we do to coming together and meeting with God and saying, God, help us. And I want to do something to say that's true. And before I do, I want you to understand this is zero. Say with us and say, zero guilt. I am not trying to use guilt. I never do. You know that I try to do everything to never use guilt or shame. Because guilt and shame don't, don't bring change. They bring short-term response, but they don't bring heart change. Guilt and shame actually do the opposite. And so it's not about guilt and shame. This is about revelation. This is about sometimes we, we see, but we don't see. Our eyes have scales on and we don't see the truth because sometimes we don't want to see the truth or sometimes... We just, don't, we just don't even recognize it. We get together for prayer as a church, for a corporate prayer one time a month, for one hour, six to seven, almost always the second Saturday of the month, and we announce it, and if we change the date, we announce it and announce it and announce it and announce it. But this is the reality um, of, of our corporate prayer. I really wrestled with putting this picture up. The reason I did is I know there are people going like this. I'm not using guilt or shame. You may work Saturday night when we do that. Maybe the time just is terrible for you. But I know this, it's not, Saturday night at 6 o'clock is not generally the time I want to come here. Um, I usually have to leave something else to come. But I think it's really important. And here's what I know. Desperation moves us to right action. And I think what we're experiencing as a church because everything's good and nice and easy and everybody just knows it's just nice. Everything gets done. The building gets clean. The sermons get preached. The songs get sung. Um, people cut the grass. And the reality is is we've a lack of sense of desperation and the reason I know there's no desperation we don't feel any desperation spiritually is because of that. That says we don't have any sense. We have a sense that, that says to me that we believe we can do it on our own. That says to me, that, 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 that just says, it's a theological statement. It's saying, we believe we can get it done on our own because otherwise we'd be gathered together. And the one time that the church brings up every single month that says, let's just ask God to do what we can't do. That makes sense? Let's move to the second thing that's vital. To experience God's intervention, his inbreaking. And it's about how they prayed. Their prayer was intercession. Do you know what intercession means? Inter- you hear the term intercessory prayer. Do you know what intercession means? It means praying on behalf of another person. Notice the reality of the story here. Peter was in jail, but the church was praying. Now, I have to imagine that um, Peter was praying too because he knew his buddy got killed in the same way. The church was praying on Peter's behalf. And notice what it does not say. And again, this is not about guilt, but it's about the picture. It does not say the pastors and the church staff were gathered in prayer. Because for our church prayer every month, 
I, don't, I do know who's going to be there for sure. <laughs> the staff. Because <laughs> they don't have a choice. Because I tell them they have to be there. Um, it doesn't say it was the pastors or the church staff were gathered in prayer. No, it says the church was praying on Peter's behalf. And I want you to think about this. And again, this is for you. It's not for me. I want you to think about, be honest with yourself right now. When was the last time you gathered with a group of Christians and you prayed for another person's situation? Now, that's the, that's the heart of our connect group. Our connect group, the main thing we do when we meet is we eat and we pray for other people's, our family situations probably, what's going on, and sometimes in your people's lives and stuff. When was the last time that you met with people and you prayed for other people's situation. Just be honest with yourself and think about that for a minute. What I see in Scripture is that's historically been the, a normal activity of Christianity. Jesus said that his house would be called a house of prayer. What he didn't say is his house would be a house of singing. He didn't say his house would be a house of sermons. Those are nice, but they're powerless without prayer. And I believe much of what we do at Portview at times is rather powerless because we're not praying for others. You know, think about this. What would be different if if people had gathered together this morning and prayed that lost people would come to know Jesus in our service today? What may have what may be different? What may be different if we had if we'd gather together and pray and say, God, there's sick among us and they need to be healed. What may be different? In this text, God ties his miraculous activity to the intercessory prayer of his people. And it's simply the way God designed it. And again, it's not a formula. It's just a moving in a direction. It's saying, God, we're saying, we really are desperate. We really know that we can't do these spiritual things. We can do a lot of physical things, but we can't do spiritual things. One plants with waters, but you got to bring, you got to do the increase. You got to do the work. And he somehow ties that to prayers of his people. So starting next Sunday, one week ago, that's why wrong time to do this, middle of summer, no pastor would ever do this. Starting next Sunday, um, we're going to do something. At least I'm going to do something. And the staff is going to do something because they don't have a choice, at least part of them. We're going to gather at this altar just 15 minutes before church at 8.45. And we are going to pray for 10 or 15 minutes. And we are going to ask God to do what only God can do. We're going to invite God to be God and do whatever He can do and the things that we cannot do. And what I'm hoping for is that you will join me. Not that you're joining me. I don't want you to say I'm doing it for Pastor Mark. I'm, doing, I'm, saying, I'm saying I think we see this if we're honest. There's this principle that God intercessory prayer is tied to the activity of God in the lives of people. And you and I all have people that need miracles. My sister needs a miracle. All the counseling in the world is not set her free from her alcohol addiction. All the, you know... She, Brother pastor doesn't even talk to her about Jesus anymore about these things because I've, I, there's nothing else I can say. We need a miracle. You guys have miracles that you need in your life. So we're just going to start. I thought, Lord, how simpler can we do it 
than say at 15 minutes for a church, we're just going to gather right here. And we're just going to say, we're serious, God. We're at least serious enough to, to come in 15 minutes earlier and, and ask you to do miracles. So I'm just going to ask you to join me starting next Sunday. We're going to do it here. We're also going to end our service today, gathering for prayer. So the last thing, I'll be really quick here. And I think this is the encouraging part of this thing. What else do we see in this story? That the people who prayed were amazed when it worked. I think it's a really important point. Why is this important? Because it shows that they were people just like us, and they had doubts, and they didn't know how it was going to work. They didn't know for sure it was going to happen. They weren't naming and claiming and believing it's going to happen this way and I declare it's going to happen this way. No, they didn't even believe it was going to work. They're together praying and they didn't even know it was going to work. They, had, they believed God could do something. That's why they were doing it. They wanted the God's best, but they didn't know it was going to happen. They didn't know the outcome. They just prayed with faith in their Heavenly Father to do what was best. And when Peter was released, they didn't even believe it was him. They told Rhoda, she was, how do you like this? You're out of your mind exclamation point. You are out of your mind. The girl who said, Peter's at the door. He can't be. We're praying for him. It just shows there's people like us. This gives me hope when I pray. I don't know the outcomes, but he does, and I trust him, and I see a pattern from God that says when we get to the point where we just say, God, we need you, and we're going to stop our things just to come together to pray. And I just want to obey that because he's the one who calls us to pray, not to cease. Well, friends, there's no other way to end our time today except to call us to pray. You know your needs. And all we're going to do, I'm going to ask Suzanne or whoever's coming with her to the the platform to play some music. And I'm just going to invite you to come and join me for prayer or stand in your seat and join me. But I'm going to ask some of you to come and join in prayer here. And, I, and I just, we can pray for whatever needs there are. But the main thing we're going to say is, God, we're just showing you by our actions that we're serious. And so whenever you feel dismissed by the Holy Spirit, you are free to leave. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. But for right now, I want us just to pray. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. I'm going to pray. When you feel dismissed, you can go. But otherwise, I invite you to come and we'll spend some time just saying, God, we need you. So, Father, I thank you that you love us so much. You show us um, truth. And, Lord, there was a day, Lord, if I would have felt led to preach this message, I would have felt um, like it was condemning. But, Lord, I don't see that in any way condemning. I see it as a lifeline that you are throwing out to your church. You're telling us there's a better way. And Lord, we looked at the church of Laodicea a couple weeks ago, and I felt that you put these two things hand in hand for this reason. The church of Laodicea saying, when you live in a place of abundance, it's hard to live well with God in a place of abundance because there's so many distractions. And Lord, I think that's a big part of all this. We, we are glad that we live in abundance. Or we can send people down to the Dominican Republic to do in a simple week what they could never do because they literally couldn't raise the money to do it. We can send people to Mexico. We can b- work on their church platform for one week and do what they couldn't do in two years because they just didn't have the money to do it. 
Lord, it's, it's wonderful to live in abundance. But we know it's distracting. And Lord, one of the things that happens is that we know this about ourselves, so I'm just confessing it for me and confessing it for our church, is that we know with abundance also comes self-reliance. We just know that we can take care of it on our own. But Lord, there's a lot of things that we can't do on our own. And sometimes we don't believe that. But Lord, there are. And we need you. We need you in our own lives to, to fill that empty void. We need you to, in our own lives to heal our bodies. We need you in our own lives, to, uh, in our own families, to heal our loved ones, to save our loved ones. And Lord, we need you in the life of this community because there are so many people who don't know you. That right now as we're experiencing this, the joy of gathering together, the vast majority of our community never even thought of gathering with other group of Christians today because they don't know anything about you. But you have something so much better for all of us. And so, Father, right now, I just felt you were saying to me as the pastor to say to our church family, listen, I've got something better for you. And it starts through coming together for prayer. And so, Lord, I want to just dedicate that starting on Sunday mornings before church. We're going to begin to gather for prayer. We're just going to ask and say, God, do what only you can do. We're going to trust you. And that, Lord, right now, just by an act of saying yes to you, we want to say, we don't want to be blind. We want to see the truth. We want to put priorities where they belong. And one of the ways that shows that is we say, yes, God, I'm praying at my church family because I know I can't do it, but you can. So church families, the worship team begins to sing. I invite you, if you would like, to come and join me at the front. There's no special way we're going to pray. We're just going to come and say it's an act of, of saying yes to the Lord. And again, if you feel dismissed, God bless you. Have a wonderful day. But I want us just to join and say yes to God.